Hey everybody, welcome to the Compact Nation podcast. We have a very special episode this week. This is Emily Shields with Iowa Campus Compact, but my usual co-hosts are not here, and in their place we have someone, sorry guys, way better. Leslie Garvin with North Carolina Campus Compact. Welcome, Leslie. Thank you, Emily, and hello, everyone. So as we told you a couple weeks ago, um, now that we've kind of stepped up our game and we're doing uh, two podcasts a month, we're going to have some guest hosts in the mix when um, one or more than one of us is not able to record. And we're really excited about that opportunity to bring some new voices onto the podcast and Uh, Leslie's is one that I'm particularly excited to have on. So Leslie, why don't you just tell our audience a little bit more about yourself? So I am the executive director, as you said, of North Carolina Campus Compact. Um, I do want to say that I'm a big fan of the podcast, and um, and I really appreciate the vision of Emily and JR to launch this and to keep it going. Um, we're doing some really exciting things here in North Carolina, and um, I'm especially excited that Stephen Black is the guest that I, uh, I get to talk about. Um, as you know, Emily, since 2009, several state compacts have been lead agencies for the National MLK Day of Service grants. Um, and that's when I first came in contact with Stephen Black back in 2009 when oh. Impact, yeah, Impact Alabama, they were one of the um, grantees because they wanted to expand their tax prep initiative and to do to start it earlier in the tax season and they were doing that throughout the state on MLK Day. So it's a really good connection. I know Iowa Campus Compact has also been heavily involved in uh, promoting the MLK Day of Service as a day on and not a day off for students. Definitely not a day off and I I love um, well, I like how he talks about making tax preparation sexy. <laughs> so <laughs> you, right. you got to have some experience doing that, huh? <laughs> Absolutely. That's awesome. Um, well, I am today recording from Grinnell College in Grinnell, Iowa, one of our fantastic member institutions, because they do a Grinnell uh, Social Innovation Prize. They are able to offer a $100,000 prize for um, a young social entrepreneur. And I'm actually on the prize committee, which is amazing and extraordinarily difficult because the um, applications every year for the prize are just so many outstanding projects. But I did, since I'm here today, wanted to plug this year's winner because her name is Gina Clayton. She started an organization called SE Justice Group. Their Mm. focus is on supporting women with incarcerated loved ones, which, in case you didn't know, is one in four women. Uh, Yeah, one in four women and almost one in two black women. So it is a particularly challenging issue, and one I was really passionate about her getting the prize because I just haven't seen anything like this where that is really the focus. Mm -hmm. Um, They really work to support and empower these women uh, and are working towards how to really turn that into more of an advocacy um, organization. And that's a lot of what we just talked about in the workshop she did here at Grinnell. Uh, was she was really very open 
and vulnerable about a lot of the, um, I wouldn't say struggles, but the conversations they're having about how to become an advocacy organization, how to be one that's fully inclusive, how to determine what they're focused on in that advocacy. And it's it's complicated. It's very complicated. So mm-hmm. I'm just really impressed with her. And, and I hope we can have her on the podcast at some point, too. Absolutely. That would be great. Mm-hmm. And so she engages students in that work? Fellow well, students? I think- I, she um, she is not a student. The the prize okay. is not specifically for college students. It's more for like uh, under forty kind of social okay. entrepreneurs social inter- is the the audience. Yeah, social enterprise. But um, part of how, what they do with the prize, which I just think is really interesting, is that they give them the prize, and obviously for uh, a young social enterprise, getting that amount of money is hugely powerful and. One of the things we try to do is find organizations kind of at that right um, point in their development for that really to make a difference. Um, you know, when they when there's enough established that you know it's a it's a viable concept, but um, you know that hasn't really taken off yet. So we hope to give them part of that nudge to really take off. But uh, then they work to really engage the prize winners with campus. So this is the prize week. So Gina is here. She gave a keynote and some other workshops and is going to classes and she'll come back again and work with classes. And, um, you know, they've had a ton of different uh, prize winners over the years and have continued to engage students all over the world with those organizations through internships and courses and other opportunities. So it's been this really cool thing where it's a prize that is a partnership, too. Wow, that sounds really great. Yeah, it's a cool model. So we will be back to talk a little bit more about my interview with Stephen Black. Um, Wanted to just introduce that. So I got to do that interview actually in person because he was here for a couple of things. Um, We brought him to Iowa to present at the Iowa Ideas Conference, which was led by the Cedar Rapids Gazette in Eastern Iowa, which was a great conference bringing together all different kinds of voices about different um, sectors and, and parts of Iowa's economy and culture. And so I was able to be on a panel at that, and he spoke, and then we went up to the University of Northern Iowa and did a workshop, and he spoke also about um, kind of culture change, ethics, social responsibility, a lot of those different kinds of things. So it was it was great to have him here, get to drive across our, our great state of Iowa and spend a few, spend a few days convincing people um, of the importance of community engagement and really uh, making culture change on campuses and beyond. And so um, for those of you who don't know, uh, Stephen Black founded the um, at the University of Alabama a Center for Social Justice and, Re- and Civic Responsibility. He has since founded uh, first Impact Alabama and then that expanded into Impact America, really looking at building strong campus and community partnerships that educate students for active citizenship. So again, Um, very, very close to our mission and the work we're doing. And I was able to talk to him kind of about their approach and uh, how he thinks about these things. So we'll go right to that interview. Stephen Black, welcome to the Compact Nation podcast. We're excited to have you on. Uh, You and I are traveling the state of Iowa together this week, at least the eastern part of it, for some speaking engagements here and excited to have the opportunity to sit down. I'm excited to be here. Thank you for having me. 
So I wanted to start by asking a little bit about your organization, Impact America. A similar mission to Campus Compact in terms of education for active citizenship. Why is that what you focus on in your work? Well, this literally started in the early 90s, reading Robert Putnam Bowling Alone, and just in a very nerdy, anxiety-ridden way, worrying more and more about the future of a country that continues to segregate and segment itself apart from each other. And, and I read the early proponents of Campus Compact and a, a growing number of university presidents who really felt as though higher education abdicated their citizenship building responsibilities. And that was just very appealing to me. And coming from a, from a reasonably poor rural state with a lot of institutions of higher education like Alabama, it just really seemed to me that if, if an organization took a step back and figured out some really tangible, meaningful needs that could be successfully addressed by engaged college students partnering with faculty as part of courses, that just felt like a meaningful model to reach out to campuses and to offer to recruit and train and supervise their students and, and let the faculty be more involved in the education and the edification part. And we just sort of went from there. So you've been really successful in raising funds, building collaborations, expanding into now four states, I think it is. Um, to what do you attribute to that success? What can we learn? I think partly, you know, there are obviously a lot of very important needs that could be successfully addressed by college students and recent college graduates working with centers for service learning and faculty. I think we, I think we did a good job choosing needs to address that were particularly concrete mm -hmm. and they had a story that went with them that I think was a powerfully, it, it was a good inspirational story to engage more faculty and students in a, in a larger scale effort. And one of them is, is a high-tech vision care initiative for low-income preschool children that uses this really cool technology that, that takes pictures of children's eyes. And from the edification part, from the campus compact perspective, it provides a really meaningful experience for the students in communities to literally be with low-income two, three, and four-year-olds in a context where they can provide a valuable medical service to them but also then have a larger context to go back to the class and through readings and discussions, think about the context in which it even brings about the need for college students to be involved in a basic healthcare issue, issue like vision care, mm -hmm. which is really sort of bizarre on its face that we need to engage college students to solve a problem like that, but we do, and I think it's a powerfully important learning experience for college students. So you, in some of the, your previous talks that I've seen, you've talked about, you know, the argument uh, for community, against community engagement in the past being, you know, this, the, the academy's not the place for this, like you just said. It doesn't make sense for college students to be doing this. And some of that still exists, but another sort of more recent argument has been around the idea that things like service learning and community engagement are meant to um, indoctrinate students into a certain way of thinking and really to try to change the way they think about certain social issues. How do you, is that a criticism you've heard? How do you respond to that? Well, I, I think when service learning is done well and it's an educational experience for the college students, it should really be the opposite. There's no indoctrination. 
I think students, whether they come from a Republican or Democratic background or whether they're apolitical, wherever they are ideologically, there is no substitute for engaging them in meaningful relationships and contact with families and communities unlike themselves. And there's no one right way to solve problems. I think even any political leader would, would acknowledge that no party or ideology has a wisdom on solving the challenges that face our nation. And first and foremost, we need a generation, especially of college students who are becoming college graduates, to have a lot more firsthand personal understanding of the experiences of the majority of families in the country for whom college is not part of their reality. Now that also means young people who have a conservative bend who come out of those experiences with, with, a, more like, with a higher likelihood to, to want to work on market-based solutions. That's fine with me. There's, when this is done well, there's no, there's no ideology or partisanship to it. It really is much more about, I mean, literally the building blocks of empathy and caring, and that crosses all the political spectrum. In your talk this morning and in, in some that I've, things I've seen you talk about recently, you focus a lot on culture change. So what does that mean to you? Well, I think a lot of people are under the wrong impression that changing culture is impossible, or if not impossible, incredibly hard. Culture meaning ingrained behavior and learned patterns of, of, of work and expectations. And the fact is, culture can be dramatically changed. And it doesn't even take very long if the right pieces are in place and the right story is pursued. And we have a lot of examples like that, especially on the local level around the country, and what most people refer to as turnaround schools. You can have a school performing terribly with a community of parents and kids and grandparents who have never seen excellence out of their school and have a new principal come in and teachers engaged and energized and believing in their, the calling of their profession. And literally four years later, you can completely redefine the culture of educational aspiration in that community. And the same thing goes for the culture on college campuses. There's nothing inevitable about college students only thinking of themselves and their own personal ambition while they're moving through universities or colleges. And in fact, the universities and colleges that do the best job of calling on students to embrace a more holistic obligation to the rest of the country and to communities beyond their own understanding, across disciplines, students respond to that. And I think that's fundamentally because within each of our human nature is empathy and is a, is a longing to have significance and meaning in our life. And schools can play a huge role in making that, a, making that a realized reality. Do you think it's only university and college leaders and administrators who can change the culture? I think it takes everyone. It's, it's hard to imagine it being done at a wholesale culture-changing scale on a campus without buy-in from the administration. But it certainly can't just be a president deciding the culture is going to change as the president certainly is in no position to do it alone. Mm -hmm. I, I think everyone has to believe in it. Everyone has to sort of buy into the value of it and, and to agree that everyone has a role to play. And I think the campuses that do the best job at this, everyone does have a role. And everyone can be proud to bring their own expertise and their own story to the larger conversation, whether that's architecture or, as you know, Campus Compact has, a, has a, an enormous, well-done 
sort of index of, of really creative engagement, service learning curriculum and material from across all disciplines. Some disciplines that most people don't even think could have service learning, like mm -hmm. the hard sciences and, and whether it's a law school. It, So if I am a faculty member or, you know, community engagement professional on a campus, what, what's a concrete step that you think someone can take to moving toward that culture where more people see, them, see this as something a campus does? Well, from the perspective of a faculty member, unless they already have an incredible community partner with a concrete goal that they think their students can accomplish and the partner wants, my first recommendation would be to reach out to Campus Compact and to do what you know you can nerd in a nerdy way called best best practice research. Just mm -hmm. to to look into what people in your discipline are doing all over the country, because there are a lot of really talented, thoughtful, passionate faculty members that have done a lot of great things at a local level all over the country. And I think it's it's very easy to get a lot of inspiring ideas from from what you're sort of cohort have been working on. And as soon as that's done, you know, some campuses obviously have service learning offices, or civic engagement centers, and some do not. I think the first most important step is just to start small in a way that you know is gonna deliver real results that are meaningful to the community, and then to make sure you're set up to measure the outcomes for your students. And Campus Compact also can help with that, with pre and post tests that are that are widely respected and used to measure things like empathy and compassion and citizenship and and to start small and then to do a really good job of documenting it and I think most people would be surprised how contagious that is. That people will start to be attracted to that and, and want to help you grow the story on, on your campus and, and your administration even if they weren't initially excited, if, if they hear directly from the students and the impact it's had on them and from the community members they'll start to identify it as, you know, a trait to be proud of of their institution. Yeah, so that makes sense. Um, and one of the things we've talked about a little bit is, you know, in order to build that culture change you talked about, you know, you need start small, really be able to tell the story well, show your outcomes. And one of the things we've talked about a little bit is just it's, not all the stories are easily understood or the you know the kind of quick easy thing that tends to grab headlines what ways have you found to tell these deeper more complicated stories about the impact that's happening well i think one one aspect of the scholarship of engagement or service learning or the, the value of engaging students in work that affects communities i think a lot of people overlook is Part of that work is the documentation of the very work itself, is the storytelling, is the journalism. And it can, it's dramatically helped by film footage, by editing together film clips. Um, obviously, students ask to be involved to write narratives about it. Photography can play a big role. And I've seen plenty of universities and colleges, and we do this at the University of Alabama, where we'll just create an elective around the storytelling of certain initiatives and we'll recruit, and this is not sort of a 101 survey course, we specifically make it by application only mm -hmm. to attract some of the best journalism students and writers in the, in the university. And we have tryouts for the photographers and we bring in students who are proficient in, in using video cameras. 
and we put this sort of dream team together of documenters and, and we have sort of different stories we want their help to tell. And I think, you know, every campus has that. Even if you don't have a large film program or large journalism program, you're going to have students who are beautiful writers and this would be appealing to them. You were talking a little bit in your talk this morning about kind of the, the sexy and unsexy stories. You, you know, you're, you're doing vision screenings for little kids. Great. That makes for an awesome visual. You can get some really cute pictures, some really good video. You, but your other big initiative is tax preparation. So how do you make that something that people get, get excited about, want to see video of? What does that look like? You know, I think... I think part of this is some level of understanding, and I don't obviously claim to be an expert in this generation of millennials, but I do think that this young generation, and to a certain extent young generations before, of college students, many of them are interested in a path of excellence. In other words, they're not running from a hard elective with a famous professor. They want to be in that. They want a high-level study abroad curriculum. They want, and I think in terms of this work, there are a lot of great projects to be involved in, and a lot of them seem, you know, really fun and exciting and work with kids. And but I think in this case, you can also recruit students based on the very narrative that this is really challenging. Not a lot of students step up to the plate for this. We really need our most talented students to take this challenge. And if you can sort of turn something like taxes into a challenge where they're sort of nervous and a little bit anxious, but then feel like, yeah, I mean, if I can do this, this is sort of a high-end thing to do. And then naturally each year they recruit themselves. I think it's really interesting how you talk about it like that because I think there is more of a tendency on campuses to try to make it seem easy to attract students. You know, oh, this will be fun. This won't take too much of your time. Um, you know, you don't have to have a bunch of qualifications to do this, right? To make it more accessible. But I don't know, I'm very interested in what you're saying in terms of, of doing the opposite in order to convey that it's important and that, that kind of thing. I think we could learn a lot from that. I think that's not typically how quote unquote volunteer work is seen or described. So that's, that's just, a, that would be a big shift, I think, for I think a lot that's of places. Right. But I think a lot of people, a lot, if, a lot of people would be able to do it well, recruit well, if they embraced the idea that part of the part of the value of that kind of recruiting is is explaining that this is extra challenging and extra hard. And if you're not incredibly passionate about helping families in a serious way, this probably isn't for you. To really raise the bar, and that's the same thing we see in schools that that turn around in dramatic ways. Is yeah. There are kids in every building in America, no matter how malfunctioning the school, who will rate, who will follow you to the to a bar, no matter high how high you raise it, with a store of ambition and aspiration, and and they're just dying for someone to believe that they can do exceptional work. Makes sense. Um, kind of switching back to your. Uh, your family history and legacy. Some of the talks I've seen you give before also talked about your grandfather and um, the idea that he he held, I think, that he educated himself out of racism. Obviously, race issues are at the forefront in our country right now. What does 
his example teach us? How do you think about that in your work today? Well, I think to me it's a much more powerful legacy than than just reading a a dumbed down version of a history book in sound bites where you just think to yourself, well, there's a good white guy and you turn the page of a, of a high school textbook and you say, well, there's a bad white guy and you turn the page and well, there's a good black guy and then you get, the people are complicated and life and humanity are messy and people go on journeys. But I think there's a lot more richness in that story. And, you know, my grandfather grew up in East Alabama, the turn of the last century and, and he was, you know, by our definitions today, he was, he was racist. He was part of a white majority in the, in the Deep South before desegregation, and that was his culture. And it just so happened that when he went to the Senate, he really had a burning sense of, meeting, of wanting to be better educated. I think he felt a little insecure being up there, less formally educated than other members of the Senate. And he was a voracious reader. And he, he literally checked out more books from the Library of Congress than anyone who's ever been in the Senate or the House. And he just got more and more interested and passionate about democracy itself and the ideas behind our Constitution and the ideas behind democracy in Greece and what happened good and then bad in Rome. And, and he fell in love with sort of the story of our founding and you know the roadblocks along the way. And, and I think in a profound way, he educated himself out of racism. And I think, I think that really has, a, has the most to do with why it's so important for us to continue to value the liberal arts. A lot of that is, that's why literature matters. That's why plays and drama and, and oratory and anthropology and ethics and philosophy. And this is not just some soft, mushy, liberal idea. Literally every one of the Fortune 100 CEOs would tell you in a second it's the stupidest thing the country could ever do would be to winnow away at our capacity to have the liberal arts curriculum be the standard education. What's best about our country, what's most prolific about our innovation and economic growth and wealth production has never had anything to do with the rote memorization of skills for a, for a low-tech job. We need more than anything for our wealth creation and our employment and the functioning of a moral society. People committed to an education connected with other human beings struggling through issues of race and class and moral and right and wrong. And that has to remain the foundation of, especially of higher education. A lot of the folks I talk to on campuses are struggling, you know, in recent years and especially this year with how to incorporate, you know, current events into what they're doing, have those conversations. Has that come up for you in your programs? Has have current events changed how you do things? Are those conversations, you know, something you're actively trying to facilitate? What does it look like right now and how is if that's different in any way? Well, for for all of, all of our courses, the courses that we sort of run and the, and the ones we help with at other universities, I think it's really important for, this ex, for the value of this experience and for the students involved to have it not be partisan. It's not helpful if it's seen as a liberal course and then it just attracts the liberal students or if it's seen as a, a Republican-leaning course. It, mm -hmm. It's really important that it's non-ideological. But to answer your question, it also is not helpful to make it so nebulous 
that you're just sort of serving up bland platitudes so no one ever has an issue that they disagree on, that's not helpful either. Right. I think like any course that, that, that is valuable in, the, in a search toward getting closer to the truth, you want to have exposure to the best of opposing ideas in a context where students can feel comfortable bringing their opinions but also sort of talking through what they've read. And even if I have my own personal opinions, if I'm going to assign an opinion piece or chapters from a book that have an opinion, I always try to balance it with the strongest possible arguments against that and from the other side and to get students to really go through the process of taking on the opinions that are different than their own and thinking through the articulation of them and the response and then the counter response. And I, I, you know, I think your question comes from the perspective that I think a growing number of faculty are worried about bringing up issues that yeah. I think that's a mistake. I think that's, a, I think that's an abdication of the responsibility of universities and colleges. Well, and do you feel that those conversations are able to be successful? Because I think what I see in the classroom is very different than the discourse I see on Facebook or even in certain groups of meetings. The classroom conversation, to me, I've seen very respectful exchanges. And is, th is that your sense, too? Do you... There, I think there's a lot of fear that it will just, you know, kind of go off the rails. Somebody won't feel safe. All those kinds of things. And then how do you do that? So do you feel like you can successfully, you know, navigate, help people navigate those conversations in a way that is respectful? From our experience, we can. And I think, you know, one of the valuable parts of service learning is, is designing situations where students will be in communities meeting people where right up front they will learn something different than their preconceived ideas. And this applies across the political spectrum. And you know, you mentioned our the tax initiative. The, the greatest thing about the tax initiative is it puts college students in a context of sitting at a table with a family making at or near the poverty line, going through all the details of their personal finances. And they always come away astonished at how hard people work and then willingly acknowledge that that's really not what they expected when they were gonna be meeting a family near the poverty line. They didn't expect to see so much work being done. And I think, I think that's just a, you know, it's a powerful starting point for better, more open discussions in the classroom. Do you, in the, the universities you work with, do you, have you seen a change in your, in your time, you know, that you've been there in the student population too? Because, it, you know, there's, there's a shift away from all students being this kind of traditional college age with the more fluent background, that kind of thing, that's not all the students. How does that change some of the things you might do? Because what, you know, you could have a student who is very familiar with what the other side of that tax table looks like because that's their family. Um, how, does that change your approach in any way? Does that add value for you or has that not really come up? A huge amount of value. And some campuses, that's still not a reality, but yeah. you're right, most campuses are have at least moderately, modestly done a better job of having more lower income or first generation students. Even when they're on a campus like a large state university, it does take extra effort to get them into um, a newly designed elective that doesn't look on a transcript or with an advisor as a concrete step to graduate with their degree. There's just not the same sort of sense of I'll just take this because it seems fun yeah. when you're focused on paying for credit hours and getting to your degree. And we put a lot of effort 
into recruiting first generation and lower income students for that very for that very reason is the classroom discussions are enriched for everyone. Mm -hmm. And as you mentioned this morning, it's a different learning outcome for the college student. Unlike someone who's grown up in the suburbs, this has nothing to do with creating empathy, a bond of empathy between them and someone who makes less money and understanding what their life is like. They know what it's like to mm -hmm. live with the earned income tax credit. It's a completely different outcome but it's at least as valuable and it has much more with, to do with what I would refer to as creating agency, creating a sense of ownership over that student's college experience in a way that any kind of help the student that college offers cannot accomplish this. In other words, it's valuable for colleges to help low-income students with study groups and you know, there'll be a Monday night talking session for first-generation college students and all of those individuals I think make sense but you have to be very careful as an institution of higher education that that kind of extra programming you put in place for your low-income or first-generation students don't reinforce the culture that you think of them as fragile and likely to fail. And service learning is a great opportunity to put them in the driver's seat and they come to, they come to campus and they may feel a little insecure, a little out of place. You just turn them right back around representing your university, making a difference in the communities like the ones they grew up in. It's a really valuable part of the classroom discussions and they're great at the work in the communities and it's great for their experience. Are there specific things that have worked in terms of recruiting um, students from that population to serve in your programs? It takes a lot of personal attention and time. Yeah. I don't know of a way to do it just by email or newsletter. Right. I mean, we specifically work with the organizations that have the most contact with first generation, you know, there's first generation student organizations and there's there's minority student and we'll go recruit and speak to their meetings. Yeah, yeah, that's been my experience too, that it is with most students, but I think especially that population that they need to be asked. They need really to hear someone say that this is for them and to help them see how they could do it and why they should and that kind of thing in a much more personal way. So yeah, that resonates with me too. I have heard you in other talks say that you think civic disconnect is the single biggest challenge our country faces. Do you still think that's the case? I think, well, let me answer it this way. Regardless of whether someone is supports our president or not, I think most people can agree, no matter who you blame, that we are in a period of growing animosity and vitriol in our public sphere. and. I am one of a growing chorus who believes that following this presidency, there will be an incredibly valuable, important opportunity to methodically, systematically define, especially for college students and on college campuses, what citizenship entails. Not just in terms of voting, but in terms of the etiquette of citizenship, the etiquette of, of how we respect and regard other people and how you can thoughtfully disagree but you can do so in a way that doesn't question someone's humanity or legitimacy as as belonging here mm -hmm. and you know EJ Dion has written a lot about this recently and I and I agree with him I think this more now than ever will be the fundamental question of our country moving forward yeah so what can we do about it <laughs> Emily <laughs> just solve it just fix it just tell us how to fix it that's all I think well 
Well, let me add this, which I think of as in the category of service learning. I think it's off some people's radar screens, but you have all of this, all of these ways in which universities and colleges can continue to develop in their capacity to provide richer, deeper platforms of empathy building for their students. In terms of being, in terms of a cost-effective way to scale that, to grow that meaningfully, we have examples in the past, starting with the Peace Corps, and then VISTAs, and then AmeriCorps, which I think unfortunately for the country, because AmeriCorps was first funded under President Clinton, we had to sort of suffer through an unfair know two decades of people believing well that was just a Clinton initiative it's not which there's really nothing could be further from the truth if, right. if there's ever been an initiative that deserves bipartisan support I mean you're talking about full-time work for a thousand dollars a month I can't think of, it could have just as easily come from a Republican president and I think it's something that not only should be supported and grown but should come to be defined as the definition of excellence for a college graduate there should always be a way to have a waiver for need for someone who immediately has to go to work or needs to quickly get through a graduate program because they put themselves through college. But the majority of our college students and four-year institutions around the country have grown up in the suburbs and all of them have at least one year of their life that they can step off their own personal ambition track and spend a year in a community different than the one they've grown up in with the sole purpose of making a difference in the lives of other human beings. Mm -hmm. And I'm not a proponent like some are of mandating national service. I think that will just turn it into like eating, making a kid eat broccoli. But by defining it as the path of excellence, you will almost have the same effect as mandating it. And when I say, what does that mean? How do you define it? Every top 20 law school in America, every top 20 medical school, business school, PhD program, should all come out publicly with the decision, we will not consider anyone as a senior in college. If you're applying to Harvard Law School and you've got a 4-0 at the University of Iowa, you should get an email back that same afternoon. Thank you so much for your interest. You have an impressive record. We look forward to you applying in the future. Unfortunately, you're a senior in college. Why don't you go make a difference for someone else for a year and then get back to us? Hmm. I think driven by the best of higher education, the best of graduate programming, there's no reason, that's a very simple, simple culture change that I think would have fundamentally long-standing implications for the health of our country. Yeah, well I agree. And I, I served my year, just so you know. <laughs> I know you did. I told you before what I think how much we're alike. <laughs> All right. Well, Stephen Black, thank you for being on the Compact Nation podcast. Appreciate you taking the time, giving us your thoughts, and hopefully we'll have you back one day. Thank you very much for having me. All right, so welcome back from that interview. Uh, Leslie, what did you think? What did you take away from that? Well, I took a lot away. I think um, he has some really great insights about how we can move forward 
um, particularly in our nation, but also in the community engagement field. Um, but I really appreciated his observations about one aspect of culture change that I've thought a lot about. And that is when he talked about how we need to raise the bar on how we talk about community engagement to students. Um, I think too often, as you all talked about in the interview, we, we try to make community engagement seem really easy and it's just really yeah. fun and it's not gonna take a lot of time and it's really accessible because we're, you know, we're trying to recruit and attract students. Um, but Stephen talked about students really being interested in what he called a path of excellence and that mm -hmm. we shouldn't be afraid to frame the activities as challenging and hard. Um, I recently completed a book review on where's the wisdom in service learning, which had reflections from many of the pioneers of the service learning community engagement field, a really oh, powerful, okay. powerful book. And um what was compelling is that when they started this movement, they had some really weighty goals, like transforming higher education, creating real social change on major social issues from like civil rights to how they were going to find peaceful uses for atomic energy, because this is, you know, after World War II. And, you know, there's some big, wicked problems out there, like poverty and racism and climate change. And we need the people working on them to understand they're difficult, they're messy, yeah. they require long-term commitment. And so, um, you know, some of the solutions like what Stephen talked about around tax preparation for low-income individuals, that may not seem sexy, but, you know, these problems, there's, there's going to be a lot of small actions that may not be that fun or easy, but they're necessary. Um, so I really liked his perspective that um, students respond when we help them see the work is important, that their contribution matters, and if we set the expectation or standard, that they're gonna do exceptional work. And I, I know even just what you were talking about, I know we've seen that throughout our states and throughout the nation. Um, and we really need, we really need students and young people to see that they can find solutions and that they can get something done, but that it's, it's not gonna be easy. That honestly was one of the biggest mental shifts that I made in seeing him speak. So I saw him speak more than once <laughs> because we were doing several events in Iowa, which is great, which is great. But it, it feels almost silly now that it hadn't occurred to me in this way. But yeah, we just think that the, the path to getting more students involved is to make this seem very accessible. Mm -hmm. um, you know, an easy entry, we'll take anyone, we want to work with you. You know, I think that's just the mindset a lot of us come from and right. think works. The mm -hmm. idea of making it exclusive, um, and I don't mean in terms of, you know, who can who can participate in pedigree and, and that kind of exclusivity, but exclusive in terms of like, you need to be very committed to this and you need mm -hmm. to be ready to work hard and this is a high bar in that regard. Um, we're just really thinking very differently now in Iowa about how we approach recruiting for um, some of our AmeriCorps programs where we've had some struggles. And those struggles have led us to try to make it seem, again, like, oh, it's, it's, it's great, it's fun, it's easy, mm -hmm. it's all these things that, you know, maybe that's not totally honest for one thing. And, and also, like, no, 
no, this is hard work. This is right. hard and necessary work. And I think um, it's just, yeah, that that's a piece I'm going to be thinking a lot about because I think it's, it's just a very different approach. But to me, it kind of threads together with the conversations we've had in the past couple of episodes about non-traditional students, too, because I think it's the same issue. With non-traditional students, I think there's a tendency to want to, again, we need to make it easier for them. We shouldn't ask too much of them. Yeah, but I um, think we're also, if we want them to be the real problem solvers of tomorrow or even today, I think we're setting them up for failure if we say, yeah. hey, this is quick and easy and sexy because once they get out and really start you know, looking at some of these challenges and trying different things and recognizing that, wow, this, this is tough work. Um, you know, maybe they'll walk away from it, and that's not what we need. We've got to have them all in the in the struggle to to build a better, yeah. just yeah. world. You know. Well, yeah, and it's having me. It's leading me to think of this to a certain extent, like like drug addiction. Okay, so stick with me here. But <laughs> sometimes we get students engaged because of that that high you get from doing something for someone, from feeling mm-hmm. like you did something good for someone else, and. That's not necessarily a bad reason to get started, but the reality is if you actually go into social change as your career or even a lot of how you spend your free time as a community leader, that high is going to get less and less. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It really is because you'll be working on tougher and tougher programs where you you just don't get to see the successes, um, that kind of thing. And yeah, so I, I think you're completely right that we're doing a disservice if we set people up with that expectation. Mm-hmm. And yeah. the other thing I was going to say is that I see it relating to the bigger conversation about non-traditional students because, you know, I think the parallel is with non-traditional students, we think, you know, oh, they just need to focus on studies. We can't ask too much of them. And then that's not what they want in a lot of cases. They want high expectations. They want high standards. They want all the opportunities for these extra things that every other student gets, but we just think that accessibility means asking less of people. Does that make sense? Right. It does. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, Stephen even talked about, um, you know, even the fact that with the way that we recruit with these, you know, let's have a big poster and let's have um, a table and let's send out an email. When you're talking about expanding the field of community or access to community engagement and service learning, and you want first generation, you want uh, minority students that it even requires a different level of, you know, that, that fun, cute advertising is not going to be as effective. You know, they, you know, you know, need to be asked, and need to be invited yeah. in because it's perceived as this thing over, you know, in the distance that's for students of privilege, you know, that have lots of time to, to kind of run around and have fun. Whereas if we say, you know, we're problem solving for, and we're, we're learning how to work together to change the world, um, and we need every voice at the table for this to be effective. And we especially need people at the table who've actually experienced some of these challenges and who probably could bring better solutions to the challenges than people who haven't been exposed or lived it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So the other part of what we talked about that, that stood out to me and actually connected up with the workshop I was just at today is this this idea of civic disconnect? Um, the workshop I was in, Gina Clayton was just talking about how 
um, you know, she's heard the Surgeon General relate uh, isolation um, to things like uh, smoking. The isolation is is deadly, that it's mm. as deadly as some of these other big public health issues that we talk about. And this was in the context of women with incarcerated loved ones who are very likely to feel isolated. Um, but I think it's in the context of almost all of us, right? I mean, mm-hmm. there's so much disconnect and isolation in this country, and we can see that at the root of so many issues. So it was good to talk about that and to feel like, hopefully, you know, we're building empathy, empathy we're building connection. The work we're doing is is leading towards that. Um, it is, as we just talked about, one of those big, big issues that it can be hard to feel like you're, you're making a difference on, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I know that he talked about, um, you know, we need to begin to define what citizenship entails, um, since we're in a period of, you know, growing animosity and vitriol in the public sphere. And I think that's what community engagement and service learning and civic engagement um, can do. It can create that space. And um, I know you all, all also talked about um the opportunities that we have in the classroom for students to really wrestle with opposing views and and to be in a space where they can fail, you know, where they can maybe say the wrong thing or they can think about things um, and be challenged um, because we need them to be able to have those deliberative skills in order to be, you know, to reconnect people, um, you know, with regard to this civic disconnect that's happening. Yeah, and there's no easy answer, but it feels good to be a part of trying to figure it out, at least. Right, right. Well, I don't think it's an option. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I think as a society, if we look around and and we think about just all of the the news that comes at us every day, that if we're going to survive as a democracy and as a nation and as a people, if we're going to survive and be whole, then I think we've got to we've got to figure out how to engage with each other. We do. Um, okay, well, we're gonna turn it a little bit lighter, maybe because knowing what you want to talk about, I'm not sure it's actually gonna be lighter. But we're gonna do pop culture corner, and Leslie, I'm gonna turn it over to you. What do you want to talk about? Yeah, so I have been binge watching The Man in the High Castle seasons one and two. I first heard about this Amazon original series about a year ago on NPR, but I'm just getting around to watching it, and I am totally addicted. Um, <laughs> I've watched it and too. I just, believe, just so you know. <laughs> yes. So I think anyone who's not familiar with the series is loosely based on um, uh, Philip Dick's novel, which I, which I haven't read, but it explores an alternative history where the U.S. lost. World War II and the Axis powers rather than the Allied powers won. The U.S. is divided into three parts, the Greater Nazi Reich, the Japanese Pacific States, and then there's this neutral zone between the two. Um, and what's amazing is to me, there are so many aspects of that story that resonate today, but the one that's been standing out the most to me is the use of symbols. You know how mm-hmm. every inch of the Reich is covered in swastikas. You know, it's on every wall. It lights up Times Square. It's draped across the Statue of Liberty. Everyone wears armbands or pins with it on it. 
Um, and then, you know, they've changed the American flag to where the stars are removed and it's a swastika and the flags line all the streets. And so even though this is fictional, we know that the actual Nazi Reich did this. You know, they branded the area with symbols. Mm-hmm. And so I guess what I take away from that is that people understand that symbols matter, right? They convey ideology. They can recall certain events. They affirm certain values. And so when I keep thinking about the conversation we're having in America today about flags and monuments, um, it's hard for me to believe people are arguing that these are just symbols of history. Yeah. As though history is like this nebulous, hazy thing that doesn't have meaning, (laughs) right? Because if their only purpose is to memorialize those who lost their lives, you know, in the Confederate battles, then why are they spread over 31 states? If the flag is just history, then why did Georgia redesign its state flag to include the Confederate flag in 1956? South Carolina put the flag on top of the Capitol building in 1962, and that was in the, the civil rights movement. So just watching this has just really helped me think about the question around what do symbols mean? And so when I look at the show and then I consider the fact that, you know, in Germany today, displaying the swastika is a crime, then I'm left with the question why. And for me, the only explanation is that symbols matter. They can inspire, they can motivate people to unite and mobilize for good and noble purposes, but they can also incite violence. They can instill fear like in Charlottesville, and they can really hurt. And I think that that's the flip side that we're going to have to continue to reckon with as a nation. So that was kind of a heavy pop culture corner reflection. But this, to me, that TV show just raises so many questions about the kind of world that we want and the potential for it to become a world that we don't want. Yeah, I I think so too. And that show has been a little harder for me to watch right now for those reasons because you're just, you know, this dystopia doesn't feel as far away as maybe it once right. did. Um, so I'll go a little lighter with that <laughs> okay. and Good. just ask: Is that show about that that, or is it about alternative universes? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I think that there's a lot going on in that show. I was trying to like deal with like the on the surface, but there's some stuff I'm totally confused about. <laughs> like there is an alternative world going on. There's some science fictiony type stuff, and I'm trying to figure it all out. But hopefully, season three will do that. Well, yeah, because we, my husband and I, are also just finishing the leftovers. Did you ever watch that? No. Uh, okay. Tell me about so it. it was- it's an HBO series that has been over for like a year or two, probably more. Someone could call me out. I don't even know. We just binge things that are over now. But it is, you know, I feel like everything I watch is dystopian, and that probably says something. But it is another sort of dystopian future where there was a, um, there was a day when some many, like 2% of the population disappeared. Oh, and some people think it was the rapture and some, you know, people have different theories mm-hmm. and thoughts about that. And it's kind of like life in the aftermath of that, mm-hmm. um, which is pretty interesting. But now it's going down this whole like quasi-religious, maybe alternative universes 
symbolism. <laughs> I'm worried it's going to end like lost and just be someone's dream type situation. <laughs> so. Right. I wouldn't be I wouldn't be upset if there were alternative universes right now. But right? I, I always get worried because I feel like maybe when a series starts to go down that road, they're starting to get lost. <laughs> and They don't know how to like bring it all back together. But I guess since The Man yeah. in the High Castle is based on a book. Maybe if we'd read it, we would really have a sense of where it's all going. But I agree that this, yeah, that there's all these questions like, is this really happening or is this not really happening? I'm confused. Yeah, it's good. It's good confusion. (laughs) All right. It is. Uh, Well, we'll have to talk about it once we pick up the next season then. Exactly. I think that's a plan. Well, Leslie, it has been awesome to have you on the podcast. Thank you for the opportunity. This is exciting. It's really fun. Um, it's good to have other co-hosts. I mean, I love Andrew and JR, so no no disrespect there at all. But, you know, it's fun. It's fun to have a new voice in the mix. Um, as always, uh, we are always planning for future episodes. So if um, any of you have suggestions for uh, people we should be interviewing, topics we should be covering, you can email those to podcast at compact.org. You can find us on social media with hashtag CompactNationPod, and we are always looking for those ideas. We have a lot of interesting episodes coming up, so stay tuned, and thanks again, Leslie. Thank you, and thank you for all that you all do to keep Compact Nation podcast going strong. Season 2 of the Compact Nation podcast is produced by Naval Mahdi for the Campus Compact headquarters in Boston, Massachusetts, and its 1,100 colleges and universities around the globe. All rights reserved. Learn more about Campus Compact at compact.org. The hosts of the Compact Nation podcast are Emily J. Shields, J.R. Jameson, and Andrew Seligson. Recommendations for guests, topics, or general questions can be sent to podcast at compact.org or join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag CompactNationPod. The Compact Nation podcast is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Don't forget to subscribe and rate us. Hey Habiba, how was that for an episode? <laughs>